Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continuing trek through Major League Baseball history, one conversation at a time. If you are new to Hardball, thank you for finding us. And I hope if the name on today's episode is the reason you tuned in, I hope you enjoy it and hear something in it that causes you to look at the list of names in the previous 32 episodes, and you find a few others you might want to listen to. If you are returning as a regular or someone who pops in here every now and then, thanks. And I hope you continue to make your way through the hardball library. If you get a chance, this helps. I've been told, please hit subscribe, as then you will be notified when a new episode drops. And I hope you might take a minute or two to rate and review if you listen on Apple or iTunes. Again, it helps spread the word of what we are doing here. And as always, I appreciate any mention you might make of hardball on social media. Appreciate those of you who tell a friend or two about the podcast, and I do enjoy reading the quick notes I get on Twitter or Facebook as well. You can send a message along to me directly at Chris Domino on Twitter and simply Chris Domino on Facebook. Today's episode is an example of why I do this podcast. I know things about these men and their baseball story, but there hasn't been one time when I haven't, in over 27 years of doing this and covering baseball, left a conversation learning something, something about their career or about their life why they played the way they did, how did upbringing set their course, what wins, and sometimes more importantly, losses meant to them, how certain people in their lives, managers, teammates, in today's case, parents, played into who they are every bit as much as what they did for a living. Davey Johnson is known to baseball fans as a few things, and what you know is probably age-related, his and yours. Davey the player, we will talk about his choices that led him to being signed by the Orioles, and how he found himself in the middle of the 1966 World Series as a 23-year-old, facing, of course, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, and the distinction, by the way, he holds in the game's history as it pertains to Sandy, and eventually what Sandy told him about his place in said history. The 1969 World Series, his Baltimore Orioles versus the Amazons, beating the early version of the Big Red Machine in 1970, his time playing with Hank Aaron and the record that he, Hank, and Darrell Evans set, And, of course, his managerial career, turning the Mets into the most polarizing, by the way, that's code for hated, World Series champion years, and why it ended without a second title that seemed inevitable. His other stops in the game and some incredible stories that center around his father's World War II experience, his career choices both on and off the field, and how he feels about his over 50 years in the game. Oh, and some of the names you'll hear during this episode, Bear Bryant, Ted Williams, Charlie Finley, Hank, Sandy, Frank Robinson, Doc, Daryl, and more. 
He has three rings and was his own man in a time when that became increasingly more difficult as he came to the end of his managerial career. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. As I tell Davey in the very beginning of this one, this man led a hell of a life, and as you will hear, he knows it. Hardball Podcast presents Davey Johnson. Ground ball a second. Backman to Hernandez. The unbelievable season is not over. But the championship is here in New York. The New York Mets become champions of the National League's Eastern Division for 1986. And we didn't have any weakness going in 86, and I thought we could dominate, and we did. And as that sign says out in the outfield, it is a September to remember. Listen, I watched this man do his work for the New York Mets up close and in person for a number of years, including the 1986 World Series. But as you know, as a player, he's got a couple of those rings as well. Let's catch up with a guy who I was just telling him, boy, what a what a life this guy has had. Davey Johnson joins us today on Hardball Podcast. Davey, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. You know, down here in Florida, it's been a cold winter, but I'm, you know, never froze, but it's it's uh, been fun. Good. So before we get into like 50 plus years of baseball stuff, tell yeah. everybody about your association or how you actually know Bear Bryant. Well, when I was at Texas a and he was a uh, football coach. And uh, I knew him and his dog, Smokey, and I admired him. And uh, any chance I got to talk to him, I was on the basketball team and the baseball team. And he was, he was uh, you know, I didn't know he was a legend at the time. I just thought he was a smart man. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I played with his dog more than I did with Bear Bryant. <laughs> but, but there's a and, moment, though, where you actually, you told me about a phone conversation uh, when you're about to go to Japan to play baseball. Yeah, you know, it was funny. Uh, uh, I was with the Atlanta Braves, and they you, to sell to a foreign country, you got to go through waivers and at 5.30, uh, oh, just before 5.30, I got a phone call from the team that drafted me, uh, claimed me, Charlie Finley. And he said, Dave, uh, we we need you, man. And I said, Charlie, you don't need me. You've already released four second basements <laughs> that year, 73. And, uh, and he said, hold on, I got a friend of yours who wants to talk to you. And Bear Bryant came on the line. And Bear said, hey, David, you, you don't want to go to Japan. You're an American, man. <laughs> Americans stay home and play in America. And I said, Bear, I'm going to triple my salary and make a little bonus. I, I got to go. And he said, no, I think you should stay. And I said, I'm sorry, Bear, I'm going. And I hung up. And, uh, and then I went to see the Braves and Eddie Robinson. And I said, I changed my mind. I'm not going. I, you know, I cleared waivers, and I said, since I'm a free agent, I can make up my own mind. Mm-hmm. He said, well, sign back with the Braves. I said, no, I, I'm comfortable being a free agent. And then I called Japan, and I said, that 160000 you're going to give to the Braves, would you give it to me, and I'll come? And they said, yep. So I went. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> listen, that. that's a hell of a business deal, but i got to be honest. Never did I think Charlie Finley and Bear Bryant would be talked about in the same day, let alone the same conversation. <laughs> By me either. <laughs> but I, I, it's a true story. I mean, uh, I don't know how in the heck Bear Bryant got with Charlie Finley. 
You tell me. Yeah. Were they friends? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, it, it, it makes for those odd bedfellows that just made this thing well worth it before we get into everything else. So I do want to talk a little bit about, obviously, your career before we talk about the managerial career because, boy, uh, you win World Series, you lose World Series as a player. But in 1966, you want to talk about getting thrown right into it as a member of the Baltimore Orioles. You, you certainly did. Well, there's no question about it. You know, uh, we had to go, you know, we, we won <laughs> – and we're going against the Los Angeles Dodgers. I remember going to the ballpark. We see a billboard and said, would you be leaving the Dodgers in four straight? And we go there and we, and we beat Drysdale. And uh, amazingly. And then uh, on the, uh, we come back and the next day we're going to the ballpark and face Colfax. And they just changed the wording. and said, would you believe the Orioles in four straight? <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, and I, I, it was a highlight of my career. I mean, I'm a big cowboy fan, and we stayed at Gene Autry's hotel. And when I met Gene Autry, I, you know, I wanted to genuflect. I mean, I was, I thought he was a cowboy, you know, a hero. <laughs> and he owned the hotel. Uh, but anyway, it was all a dream for me. And a funny thing in the, in the second game, uh, about in the seventh inning, uh, I got a base hit off a guy named Sandy Koufax. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think Walt Austin was manager. He took him out. And then we won the next two games, so Sandy retired. And so one of my biggest achievements in my life, I got the last hit on Sandy Koufax. <laughs> the next spring in Vero Beach, I hate to tell you this, I went up to Sandy. I was so proud of myself. I said, hey, Sandy, guess who got the last hit off you? And he looked at me right in the eye and said, when that happened, I knew I was washed up. <laughs> <laughs> And, and think about this, washed up where I think he won 27 games that year, but as he said, he couldn't comb his own hair. He couldn't get his arm above his shoulder. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, when I, I at first they would give a scouting report, Sandy Koufax says, he's left-handed, he's only about 5'9 or something, and he comes right over the top, he can't be that tough. The first time I faced him, I thought the first two fastballs, he was going to tell me we were going to hit the ground away, and they rose up and were right on the black. And both of them were about... 98 miles an hour, mm-hmm. and they rose. I said, this guy may be better than programmed. And then he threw me a curveball. I think it hit 10 feet in the air. And uh, I said, boy, I said, this guy's pretty good for a left-hander. Anyway. So you're, it's Drysdale Koufax. You win that World Series. You guys kick it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is yeah. a sweep, but it's it's you guys who do the sweeping. But there's something yeah. interesting about that because you, you moved around a lot as a kid. And I would imagine, tell me if this is a theory that might be right, maybe the reason you were able to handle minor league baseball at 19, 20 years old is you had been around people. You had been in situations where a lot of these 18, 19, 20-year-olds were out of the home for the first time, and they really don't know their ass from their elbow. So when you get called up even to the major leagues, can I ask that maybe living a military life, moving around a little bit with your family might have actually helped prepare you to play with grown men? Well, there's no question about it, Chris. I mean, I, you know, my grandfather was Navy, retired Navy for 30 years in Norfolk. Uh, and my father was retired Army. And uh, he didn't see me until I was two years old because he was a prisoner of war. He got captured by Rommel. And they took him to uh, Poland. And, uh, amazing story. Uh, I, I, he sees my father comes home in 45 and. I was born in 43, so I'm two years old when he sees me the first time I see my father. But 
I go to manage the Nationals in 2011. This is the most amazing story of my whole life. Uh, the AAA uh, president is a guy named, um, uh, forget his name now, uh, it's a 78 year old uh, left. Anyway, he calls me and uh, he said, Dave, I'm sending you a picture. And I said, well, what about it? He said, you'll know when you get it. And he sent me a picture. And there he was with my father on the steps of the Gugelag in Poland. And uh, it was, uh, you know, he, he was 93 years old. My father died when he was 75 or something. And here this president of our AAA club is reaching out to me. He was a prisoner with my father on the Gugelag. And uh, uh, anyway. David, can uh, I ask, did you ever, look, I know that generation, they didn't really come home and talk about their exploits. I actually spoke to a gentleman by the name of Cecil Travis, uh, who Ted Williams said is the greatest hitter that nobody ever knew because of his time in World War II. And his grandchildren were the ones who reached out to me 20 years ago and said, he doesn't talk about it. Is there a chance maybe you can get him to have a conversation about his baseball career? And, And he did it. And he was living in Georgia at the time. He was an older gentleman for sure, but he did it because his his grandchildren had told me they never heard him speak about his baseball career and certainly not his military career. Did you ever have? Was your father part of that generation where he didn't talk about it, or did you ever even? Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. My father, I I asked him, you know, as I was an adult, I said, Dad, tell me about your life. No, I'm not talking about you know, because when he was in there, he also said teeth that bother him, and they pulled him out without Novocaine and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I also, you know, I had the luxury to play against Ted Williams, and I have to tell you, he became a friend of mine because I was uh, in spring training down in Miami in the batting cage, and here comes Ted Williams uh, down the right field line with three cameramen. And, I man, I jumped out of the cage and said, Mr. Williams, Mr. Williams, uh, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, did you really squeeze the sawdust out of the bat? And about 20 minutes, he told the guys to get lost. And 20 minutes later, uh, we kept talking and talking about everything under the sun mm-hmm. and about his hip cock and about his stride and slight uppercut. And, and we became very good friends. Every time I came into Washington, I ran over and talked to him. And the fact is, I, after he retired, he had a home down in Alamorada. And I had a home down there, too. Mm-hmm. And I used to go over to his house. Uh, he's a big fisherman. And we'd sit there. He'd ply me with vodka. And we'd talk. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most – I was so honored. I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Ted Williams, probably the greatest hitter that ever lived. Can you believe that, Chris? And and it's funny. His name just came up the other day because I spoke to Frank Howard, another guy that you know, obviously with the time yeah. of the Mets and Frank yeah. Howard in Washington and everything else associated. Yeah. But Fr- Frank actually reiterated what, what Ted told me. I had the, the great, great fortune. I think according to what, who was then his daughter-in-law, it was the last full interview that Ted did. And when he talked about his baseball career, and we did, there was no doubt in my mind his military uniform was so much more important to him. His brotherhood in the Marines was so much more yeah. important to him than baseball. And you think that's Ted Williams, one of the greatest ever, who now says, I could easily put that aside because my military career is the thing that I'm most proud of. So that's, again, a different generation of cats. Well, yeah, well, I talked to this about him. You know, 
My father went to Florida State. I mean, Florida when it was all men. My mother went to Florida State when it was all women. And he got a degree in chemistry, and mother graduated from Florida State, all women. So when I was transferred, my father, first we were in Florida, and he came back, and then we went to Georgia, uh, Fort Benning there, and then we went to Fort Sam Houston in Texas. I was traveling all over, and I, I, I would make every baseball team. I'd walk out there in Little League, and I'd say, you need somebody to play? And he'd say, where are you playing? I said, anywhere. <laughs> then, then what was amazing when I was right, went to high school there in San Antonio, I decided I wanted to go to Texas A&M because there was no women. I could play basketball and baseball, and it was a military school, and I, and I joined the ROTC Air Force, Navy, Army, and I'm Air Force. So I'm definitely an Army brat. Yeah, and, and being it, around grown-ups. You're around grown-ups, and there's a respect that I'm sure that your father uh, instilled in you that, probably served you well when you get up to Baltimore. And there's Frank Robinson, and there's Brooks Robinson, and there's yeah. all these other people who you better know how to handle yourself at that point because well, they're expecting to help you win. Yeah, I mean, you know, as teammates, it was one thing. I mean, I, I respected them all and everything from my Army background. But I also had that the one thing that I think hurt my career when I went into managing is I believed in the guy right above me was always my boss. Whether it was my manager or my coach, they were my boss as a player. When I became a manager, the number one authority in my life became the general manager. And I wouldn't even talk to the owner of the ball club because I didn't want to usurp the, the general manager's authority over me. And I think that hurt me because a lot of managers stayed a lot of places. They uh, cozied up to the owner. Well, I could never do that. It was never in my makeup. So you were not going to play the game. Because you didn't believe that's the way the game needed to be played or, or should be played. No, I always believed that the general manager is my total right. boss. I could disagree with him, and but when he made a decision, I had to try to make it work, right. even if I disagree with it. I gotta, he was my boss. i got to ask you something. I want to go back to 66 for a second. Is it true, yeah. and was there any indication from Frank Robinson himself, that Cincinnati really think he was sort of done? Because I would imagine if there was ever an inkling that Frank Robinson believed that. Uh, as if he wasn't great enough, he, he was probably going to unleash a holy hell on people. Well, let me tell you something. When, when we got Frank, I'll never forget this as long as I live. We're playing. He comes a little bit late to spring training, and we're playing a little exhibition game. And uh, Frank comes. He comes out in his uniform. He goes up to Hank Byers and says, uh, you, want, you want to put me in the lineup or something? He said, yeah, go pinch hit. And he sent him up to pinch against a guy named Dick Hall who was a great accountant, and he hits one over the left field wall in Miami. I'm saying, man, we've got something here. Man. <laughs> he hadn't even taken any BP, and he goes up, pinch hits, and hits one out. Uh, so at any rate, uh, I thought that that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. You know? He's 30 years old, but there was sort of a whisper that Cincinnati really yeah. believed he was on the wrong side of it. Yeah. They were wrong. Well, no doubt. He won the Triple Crown. And uh, he would have, uh, you know, won it uh, the next year. But remember him sliding into second base and Al Weiss kneed him in the eye. And it dislocated his retina. He was, he was leading the league in all categories. Mm. And he dislocated the retina. And that was the one, the perception eye. And uh, he went on and still had a great year. 
Yeah. But he couldn't uh, see that perception. When you win a World Series in your first year up in the bigs, you're an intelligent guy. You're a college guy, as a matter of fact. Multiple colleges when all is said and done, by the way. Uh, But did you think it was that's how it goes? Like, this, this is what happens up here? Well, I think it, what happens up here is when, and I learned a lot from Earl Weaver, more so than Hank Bauer. In fact, is when I was a player rep, and Dalton called me, Harry Dalton, the general manager, called me in his office. I said, Earl Weaver's 10 times. I had him in double-A, Earl Weaver. Yeah, Elmira, ten right? Times man- yeah, Elmira. I said he's 10 times the manager of Hank Bauer. And uh, I said, because he knows how to handle a pitching staff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Hank Bauer doesn't. And uh, and so, you know, and I left. I mean, I just gave him my opinion. And then uh, about a week later, he fired Hank and hired Earl to manage the club. But I, I learned so much in the minor leagues from Earl. And he, he protected pitchers, and he, he divided his bullpen mm-hmm. into uh, – a and B, and he had long left and long right, and then he didn't. He never abused the pitcher. He never pitched him two days in a row unless there was a closure, the setup closure. And you stored this away, by the way, like this. Oh was, yeah, I mean, yeah. I was always, you know, a student of the game. I, I always wanted to know, you know, why they did this and why they did that. Why, you know, I, you know, I was, I was in in, in the infield. I mean. I knew how we were going to move, and sometimes you never move Brooks Robbins because he always played close to the line because he could go about 50 yards to his left because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> his first step was always with his right foot. He, he, he took two little steps, and not that he was fast, but his reaction and instincts were unbelievable. And, um, you know, I learned from Apparee's show and just watching these guys play. You know, it was a – uh, an education every day. Right. And by the way, it becomes a master's class when you start and you're smart enough to start watching other managers. We'll talk about sort yeah. of self-scouting coming up in a little bit, but I do have to ask you, I'd be, I'd be out of my mind uh, pissed off if I didn't. The 1969 World Series, be honest, did you guys think that you were going to walk in and win that World Series before it actually started? No doubt about it. We thought we'd walk all over them. And we beat Siva the first day. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it seems like the gods were against us because every conceivable thing from a guy in the baseline they didn't call to a foul ball with Leon <laughs> Jones? Miraculous, yeah. And then, uh, you know, balls would fly back to Swoboda and he'd catch them. And we were go-glubbers and the balls would go away from us. I mean, and finally, when it was, you know, the fifth game and I was up against Nolan Ryan. I had a fly ball. I thought it was going to go out of the ballpark. And I'm at second base. And when he catches it, Cleon, or not exactly quite there, but 50,000 people came on onto the field. I said, man, they're going to take me as a souvenir. i got to get back in the dugout. <laughs> I'm making the last out in the 69 World Series. So I started helping the Mets long before I got to manage him. <laughs> so here's what's crazy. I know about the shoe polish incident. I know Tommy Agee makes two great catches. Swoboda yeah. makes maybe the greatest catch of all time in a postseason right. game. Right. And and here's the two things that you really have to think back on. I think that game ended at 3.10 in the afternoon, so it's day World Series baseball, and you still were allowed to rush the field and take whatever the hell it is you can get your hands on as a fan. I know it. I know it. <laughs> I mean, I was... 
I was horrified. I was at second base, and here's 50,000 people running on the stand, on the field. I mean, I said, Lord, help me make it to the dugout, please. Well, the good news is they were so – they were trying to steal stuff off of Mets heads that maybe you yeah. had it a little bit easier trying to get You're help. Right. Listen, I know right. a couple of those guys ran into the bullpen because, you know, they did the bullpen route. Uh, the outfielders oh, well. ran to the bullpen instead of trying to get into the dugout. It, it's an unbelievable <laughs> right? situation. Yeah. I didn't know anything about that, but I just knew get back to the dugout, get in there, save your life. <laughs> so I got to talk about Atlanta. You end up in Atlanta, and for those people, I, I'm in Atlanta for the last 27 years, so this is sort of like muscle memory for me. But you yeah. not only out home run Henry Aaron in 1973, you, Henry, and Daryl, do something that nobody in the history of baseball had ever done, three teammates hitting 40 or more home runs. Now, i got to ask, was it a big deal? Like, were people talking about it in 1973? Did it register with people that you guys were about or maybe could do something nobody had ever done? Not really. Um, you know, I, I was lucky because I, I got an arm injury and subluxed my left shoulder running over catches, and they, I asked to be traded to Atlanta because I wanted to go out on a National League club and, and the trainer, uh, Dave Persley, said, took me to the doctor and said, you have a sublux left shoulder. You just need to lean against the wall and uh, everything. And I got healthy, and, and so I, I started hitting the homers. And I lockered right next to Hank. And that whole year was started, and it was about him breaking Ruth's record. Mm-hmm. And he stayed at different hotels because uh, people didn't want him to do it, you know. Um and but we all we all loved Hank and we all admired him. I mean, there couldn't have been a nicer gentleman in, in, in baseball than Hank Aaron. I mean, he, he did everything well on the field. He was a great defender. He had a great arm. He steal bases, and he he wasn't just later in his career is more of a dead pull hitter. Mm-hmm. But early in his career, he hit the ball all over. And uh, I I learned just just watching him take batting practice. I mean. He just hit ground balls. He just tried to stay on top of it and hit hard ground balls. His idea was hit two hoppers through the infield. I don't remember him ever hitting a home run in BP, you know. And uh, as a young student of the game, I I didn't miss a thing he did, although I did make one bad mistake. Uh, He wasn't there, and he always had a stereo in his his, uh, locker. Mm Mm-hmm. And I changed the channel one day, and he, I thought he was going to, he read me out. <laughs> he knew it was me, and I apologized. I wanted to do genuflect. I didn't know what to do. I thought he was going to kill me. <laughs> I, I learned, oh, I can't do that ever again. Don't mess with anybody's locker. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, that's a, that's the a thing as a media member. I, I've a- you know, I'm aware you don't even stare into a guy's locker, let alone touch anything yeah. in his locker. Go yeah, here. No so, so I, I want to ask respectfully, how the hell did you pop for 43 home runs that year? Well, I really was healthy. And fact is, uh, I did a lot of exercises. To, you know, I had 16 home runs. I was a home run hitter in the minor leagues with Baltimore. And then they had me going to right field like Brooks Robinson. And then I ran over a couple of catchers. And, uh, but I recovered a little bit. Uh, I had 16 home runs before the All-Star break one year after I gave away this, uh, quit trying to hit to right field. But I ran over a couple catchers, and then I only hit two the rest of the year. And then next year, I couldn't even hardly swing. Got to Atlanta. They fixed me. 
And I remember I had two home runs and nine ribbies, and Daryl Evans had nine home runs and 20 ribbies. And I remember swinging in a, a San Diego, and my shoulder freed up. I had all these adhesions built up from doing this exercise, leaning against the car door, every wall I saw for hours a day. And uh, uh, I, I, Daryl said to me, you want to have a – you think you're going to catch me in home runs? I said, give me seven home runs and 11 ribbies, and whoever wins two out of three average home runs and ribbies, take the other guy and his date uh, to dinner in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, great. And so – we did it, and he thought he had a lot because he's already at home with me mm-hmm. by 7 and 11. He said, dude, I went on a chair. I hit 13 and 16 one month and whatever. I out-homered him, and uh, uh, I, you know, I think I out-ribbied him, too. I had 99 ribbies. Uh, did he pay up? About the same. No, he didn't pay up. Oh, <laughs> <bitch>. <laughs> I mean, uh, he, he's still around. He may have still have a chance because we didn't kick the bucket yet. Okay? Well, so I, I want to go back to something real quick. 1971, you're on a you're on a team where four guys won 20 games. Speaking of something that yeah. never happened in baseball, but 1970 yeah. happens, and and thank God, right? Because you come off 69. And I don't know yeah. what spring training is like, and and I'm I'm assuming you're, it's a little foggy, and you're going, how the hell did the Mets yeah. just beat us in five games? Yeah. How important was 1970 for you, not only individually but collectively, as you look back in your career to get that World Series? Another well, one, by the way. You know we, you know we were going up against a big red machine, and uh, uh, but I thought we matched up really good. With and the fact is, you know we had. You know, back then it was a four-man rotation. Yeah, and uh, we had four great pitchers, and um, you know, Coyier, McNally, uh, Dobson, and Palmer. Palmer. Yeah. And uh, you know, we I, we had plenty of confidence. And you know, it was really funny. You know, when I look back on the series, you know, they had all these great players. Every game that they were up early. We won. The only game we lost is with the game we were up early. Mm-hmm. They won. And it was a five-game series. And uh, Frank Robinson, I think, was the MVP. And it was wonderful. Brooks Robinson, so your vantage point, because that's the World Series where, again, what's really crazy is baseball needed a few things to happen. A 75 World Series and a Fisk home run was really a turning point because night baseball, World Series baseball, yeah. was a was a network game that people would talk about the next morning at the at the water cooler, so you needed it. But if anybody's watched the 70 highlight film of Brooks Robinson in that game, so you're at second base. What the hell is your vantage point as he's doing what he's doing that game? Well, first of all, uh, those plays were nothing new. I mean, any ball hit to his right, he would die for. And uh, I don't know how he could dive and still catch it and then get up. He didn't have a great arm and still throw the guy out. Uh, he could go along with his left, but balls hit down the line. And he, he, he was maybe two or three steps off the line. He would have to dive that way. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had such great instincts that he would catch it and get up and throw him out. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, that series sh- just showed it off. Right. Okay. But you guys knew it, but but the world yeah, saw did. it in 1970. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, we knew it all along. I mean, I, I think he, I think one time he came over to his left on a double play ball, 
I think he threw it to me between his legs. I'm not sure. <laughs> I always paid real close attention. I always had two hands there because he had small hands, and sometimes the ball would go to the right, mm-hmm. sometimes go to the left. It was always right in a, in a good area to turn to double play, but he was amazing. I, mean, I admire him a great deal. You playing both the National and American League, and you start in the 60s into the early 70s. And again, I told you, I spoke to Frank Howard, who started in the late 50s and went to the 70s. That era of baseball is incredible. As a second baseman, I'm really asking, because there were certain guys that, big bat, I mean big bat, ball explodes off the bat. Were there guys that you knew that I'm taking an extra step back because even where I am, like I I can't even imagine how some pitchers throw to these guys not fearing for their lives. At second base, were there even a few guys that you actually said, I'm going to take a step backwards on this guy? I I never really took a step back. I played him by the way, but... But uh, Frank Howard, um, uh, you know, he, he's the only guy that I think I've ever seen. I mean, he used to hit balls in upper decks and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But he's the only guy I've ever seen that I think uh, on Cuellar broke his bat on a screwball and still hit it out in the right field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I said, this man's inhuman. You know, there's a story. It, I don't know who the pitcher is. God, I, I wish I could remember. There's a story that allegedly Frank Howard hit a ball right back through the middle that the pitcher ducked, and then it still ended up going 15 seats deep in the center field. Well, I, I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I remember uh, sitting in the front seat of a rental car in an all-star game with Frank Howard, and – I felt like a midget because he, he, and I felt like I should drive because he was all over the steering wheel, the, uh, the roof, everything, and, and I was just in awe that, uh, and we were we were friends, you know, yeah. uh, and I just admired his massiveness and his ability. So how about now? Let's play the defensively. A guy coming down the first baseline because back then, I mean, the game has changed so much that. You can't touch second baseman. You can't touch shortstops now. If you go out of the baseline, yeah. they're going to call you out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was not your era of baseball. Give me one or two guys that you knew standing on first. Geez, I hope it's a good toss, and I hope I get it out of my hands as quickly as possible. Well, there were a lot of them, I mean, that could get down the line. Um, but I was fortunate because uh, when I moved, uh, I came up as a shortstop, and then Aparicio was a shortstop, so they moved me to second base. And I went down to Venezuela and, and learned a lot about strengthening my arm and everything about his tendencies. He used to say, don't, if you don't throw it over the right side of the bag, it's going to go in left field. Mm-hmm. So he had a little spot there that I had to throw to. So I practiced hitting that spot on the outside corner. And then, you know, uh, I just learned a lot about second base. In fact, as I called up Mazeroski and Richardson, mm-hmm. I played golf with them. I picked their brain. I learned the footwork. Uh, you know, I mean, I, nowadays, because they have a right fielder, a center fielder, or a third baseman playing second, uh, none of, they, nobody teaches the footwork on how to turn it into a play. Right. And, and it was real easy. You hit the bag with your left foot, you step toward the ball, and with, as you transition the ball, you, you put your left foot down, but there's never much weight on it, and you pirouette toward first so that you get a lot on the throw. And so no, everybody would kept hitting my left leg, but there was never any weight on it. And I pirouette, boom. 
Nowadays, they stay behind the bag and just throw it, and nobody could ever get to them. Yeah. Uh, just kind of a different game. Well, there were pictures of, of second baseman and shortstop literally being knocked to the outfield grass. I mean, like if you if you well, caught a bad one. Oof. Yeah, well, the only one guy ever knocked me down at second base, and um, I was it was I was taking a throw from the shortstop in the hole. Fergosi was on first, and there was. Uh, there was a runner on first and second, and he threw me the ball on the outside of the bag. I tucked it and took a step toward left field. Fergosi ran right by the bag and clipped me. It knocked me down, and the guy was going for second or third scored. Mm-hmm. I said, man, and that should have been interference. It would have been ten times over. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, Jim, great slide. <laughs> 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 so who's the first person that tells you that you might be manager material? Uh, you know, um, you know, I watched a lot of managers, and, uh, you know, it was kind of funny because uh, I got a guy named Joe Ryan, who was the president of the American Association, called me up to manage a team uh, called the Miami Amigos, and like Miami, and it, it was a uh, – it was it was very interesting because I didn't know anything about it and uh, I went down and you know to Miami and I had to uh, actually pick my team uh, from AAA guys you know that were not on the major league roster and I had a trial camp and uh, down there in in, uh, in Miami and one up in Sanford and I had two or three trial camps and I I just picked a team. And then when the league started, it was between Miami, Puerto Rico, Maracaibo, Venezuela, you know, uh, it was called the Inter-American League. And we were doing good. I mean, we were 18 games up after uh, 81 games, and the league folded. (laughs) You know, we were 18 games up, and the league folded. Uh, I'm still not sure why. And uh, so that was my first managerial job. And then I think it was a year later or something, uh, Joe McElvain called me. I was at home said, uh, you want to manage in the Texas League? I said, sure, man. My, my family's in San Antonio, and uh, I get to see all my family, my mother and everybody. He said, great. So you could agree to manage our double A club? I said, sure. <laughs> the bad problem was it was in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a 13-hour bus ride oh. to San Antonio. Oh. So it was in, uh, wasn't in Texas. Yeah. I was in the Texas League. <laughs> and with, you know, uh, Location, location, Hershiser location. Hershiser was in San Antonio with the Dodgers. <laughs> but I was 13 yeah. hours away by bus. <laughs> so you d- you did a few years in the minor leagues, though. Yeah, I did the first year. And, you know, um, um, I didn't have a lot of prospects, but I picked my team pretty good. And uh, we we got in the playoffs, and then uh, we beat Hershiser and his team. And um, I beat Hershiser. I remember I said, this guy's great. So every time you get on, we're playing hit and run. That's all we did. Yeah. We got on and we hit and run. But we beat the Dodgers and um, wanted to win the Texas League Championship. And that was in, I think, 1981. Uh, and then 
they asked me to go back there. And I said, no, I've had enough of those bus rides. I ain't going back there. And so they uh, said, well, you want to be a rover? I said, sure. So I rode for a year. I went and saw the Rookie League, Double mm-hmm. A, all the way up and down, which was a great experience because I, I saw the difference in the leagues. Yeah, and the other and then, thing uh, is, you, yeah. so when you get called up to the big club to be a coach, you had seen some of these guys now in the minor leagues, which is really, if I've, I've always yeah. thought it's a great move when guys feel yeah. comfortable with a guy if he's on the staff as they're really ready now to start yeah. their major league careers. Well, unfortunately, that job there it just earned me a job to manage the AAA club. It didn't earn me to be a coach in the big leagues. And so uh, in AAA, uh, Tidewater, mm-hmm. uh, they had the AAA World Series for the uh, International League, the Pacific Coast League, and um, American Association. And uh, it was in Louisville. And uh, we won the AAA World Series. And and so and they, Cashin called me in the offseason and said, uh, you, you want me to come up and interview for the mess job? And uh, they offered. He offered. He called me to an airport and and negotiated the contract in an airport with me. And I told him, you know, I'm glad to take the job because I like to work for smart people and catch him smart because he's hiring me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I told him. And, and you had a relationship with him that you really wanted to keep. That thing we talked about earlier, manager GM. If it's just the two of you, yeah, then things are going to be fine. Now we're going to talk about an incident that comes up in a second. We'll talk about something that we talked about yesterday, where something that I've been talking about for over 20 years, how I knew the Mets had fucked up. Like, this is one of those where you just go validation that there was a bad move. But I have to ask you about that 84 talent, 85 season, because I think you needed 85 to actually have 86 happen, correct? Well, 84, you know, we, we won 90 games. And uh, we got outscored by the opposition 18 runs. I had one, one half of my bullpen was okay. The other half wasn't too good because I protected him. Uh, but then in 85, you know, we won 98 games. We could have won it. But, but 85, I told you, as a fan, it was my favorite season to be a Met fan because yeah. everything that they had talked about and, and personality of that team really, really made itself evident in 85 to get ready for 86. I mean, 85 was a fun year, but we didn't win it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was our goal, to win it. I mean, the, the critical point in that year was we are playing the Cardinals and Darling's pitching a great game as usual, and he, he breaks his thumb or something on a ground ball topper between first and uh, the mound. And he goes out, and we're, we were winning one to nothing. I bring in McDowell, and Pendleton hits a two-run homer. Mm-hmm. And the Cardinals win by three games, and uh, they won 101 games. And that's that's when 85 was kind of a stepping stone. Right. And then we made a few more changes to, toward the Cardinals I didn't think could even hold a candle to us. Because, you know, Herzog taught me about weaknesses in my club. And so uh, I fixed how he, those. How, and, he, how he managed against you was really a key in your mind because then you realized that self-scouting thing that we touched on a little bit earlier, you better know your team better than anybody else. And if the other manager is going to help you know your team better, fantastic. Learn from it. You know what I mean? Whitey was 
And, you know, a lot of managers I played against, Leland was very good, and Whitey, but I learned a lot from Whitey because, I mean, he had his bullpen set up. He had Hartthorne left and Hartthorne right. And he would bring in those guys to for a couple of my switch hitters and show their weakness. And, um, you know, so I, you know, one of the things that I learned from him is that I needed Tuffle to back up Bachman and Ray Knight to back up Hojo, mm-hmm. Howard Johnson. And once that was just a couple of the moves, you know, um, I learned other things other than that, but those were the, I, those really stood out. So when you go to and camp, I, when you go to camp in '86, you got this taste in your mouth. You know you can compete. You absolutely Cardinals win yeah. the World Series, and you took them down to the wire. So you know you're good enough to to compete right. for World Series, probably win a World Series. But there also is this idea living up there that whether it was said or whether it was believed or whether it was just a thing that you guys knew, it was. And I'll use the words. It was, fuck everybody, we're going to kick the shit out of you, and we're going to carry ourselves that way. Now, I'm not sure if that was ever spoken, but is that sort of, because it was certainly the vibe that whole year. Well, I knew that after a good winter and the other additions we made to the ball club and the maturity of some other players I had on the ball club, I knew that we were the best club in baseball, period. And so, I, I mean, I even said to the team and I said to the media, uh, we're not only going to win, we're going to dominate. And I met it from the bottom of my heart in my mind and heart and soul, everything. And, uh, what we did, we won 108 games and, uh, (laughs) we had to face a tough, uh, Nepper and Scott in, in Houston. And we, uh, you know, I was talking to Stoudemire in that sixth game. I said, we got to come back and beat Napa. We're down 3 nothing in the eighth inning. we got to beat this guy. And because uh, I don't want to face Scott in game seven. Yeah. And we came back and beat Napa. And uh, that was a miracle. And then, of course, the World Series, once we uh, tied the series after that game six, uh, the Buckman move. Uh, we still were one win away from winning the World Series, but I said, my guys, and I felt it myself, it's over. The momentum is on our side, it's over. And even though we were down three runs in the seventh game of 80, uh, 86, I knew we were going to win it, and we did. I, I don't even know the score. It was probably 10-4 or yeah, something. It's, it's, by the way, it's, it's maybe collectively the 86 postseason with what was going on in the American League, get Boston there, beating the Angels, and what yeah. you guys did with Houston. It might be yeah. the best postseason ever if you really think about drama and everything else yeah no question i mean it was just some great teams in the postseason but it was an interesting collection because it's 84 85 winning in 86 87 88 i mean if you look at that team and if you look at the new york media newspapers daily news new york post everybody's looking for a story you guys are covered you guys don't mind being sort of the bad guy you know it's it's like our uniforms are going to be dirtier than yours and we're going to go out we're going to party and we're going to do this we're going to do that that is some collection. For, and I'm going to, as a military guy who grew up in a military house with discipline and everything else, could you even believe some of the shit that was going on around you and how it was written and talked about? Yeah, I mean, that's just in New York. I mean, every everything's a story. And, I, you know, I didn't try to restrict my players from uh, the big rules and whatever. I said, you know, just be on time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh you know, play the game. And, you know, the fact is, <laughs> one time going to the playoff games, uh, there were uh, extra beers left on the plane, mm-hmm. and the club was going to find us $5,000 of players. 
I said, I'll pay for it. And it wasn't my players because they know uh, if they have a beer, they put it with the hostess or in the garbage can. And I said, I'm going to pay the 5000 because the wives did all this. <laughs> and, and then it came back to cash, and he said, no, we're not firing him. You know, that's it. <laughs> I, don't want Dave, I don't want Davey to pay $5,000. So that's what happened. So what was the reality with the Hernandez strawberry, Gary Carter, like the, the factions that supposedly, and I guess there's something, look, if two guys are going to fight in a spring training game, I guess there is something to some of this at least. Well, you know, that's the competitive spirit that they all had. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all had their points. And, uh, you know, I, Keith Hernandez was, was elected by the team just before I got there as a captain. And when we got Carter, I uh, also elected him as a captain, co-captain. And uh, Daryl and Straw, I mean, Straw probably did a little something. He was always on the edge, you know, uh, of breaking the rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hernandez probably called him out. You know, that was what I thought of everything. And, but I understood both guys, you know, uh, and I, you know, I kept it from escalating. I said, yeah, "This is this is a healthy, competitive relationship." You know, I'm not going to put too much in. It. I'm not going to take any uh, strong um, conditions on any of them. You know, because that's I like the competitiveness they both have and the fight that they have in them. What about Gooden in '85? Is that as good as anything you've ever seen? And no doubt about it. I mean, um, I, you know, and in, in, I just shocked uh, when I, a couple of years later he told me he had to go away for a um, drug problem because he had the greatest mother and father I've ever been around and a great baseball coach and there couldn't have been a guy that enjoyed the game more than Dwight Gooden you know I had him in when he was age 17 in Kingsport and he pitched for me um, uh, I was the uh, roving that year and uh, uh, I, saw, I had him and Yeomans and, and Myers uh, Randy Myers and Floyd Gilmans. And I, when I threw them on the side, Floyd Gilmans and Myers would hit the, the net in the back. And Dwight Gunn, 17 year old guy, came up and was painting, blowing away on the black mm-hmm. about 95. And and same way on inside, and his curveball was always over. <laughs> I mean, I said, Doc, uh, how do you grip your fastball? And he said, Across the scenes when I'm going to put a little giddy up on it, and with the scenes when I want lateral movement. Holy moly, that'll work. <laughs> and at but nineteen did, at nineteen yeah. he's doing it against grown men. I mean it's one of the Yeah, I mean he was seventeen made. then. Yeah. Seventeen years old and he he had so much knowledge and he read hitters. I mean I called a game and he pitched in and the, the three hole hitter on this club, uh the catcher called for a fastball and he threw a fastball just kinda of down the middle. Guy fouled it straight back. And the catcher says, oh, let's give him a curveball. He was on that. And Dwight said, no, I want to throw him. He shook him off until he came to a fastball inside. Mm-hmm. Dwight said, now, hit this one. <laughs> and the guy couldn't hit it. So I set up the, the curveball. He tried to get to it, couldn't get to it. Uh, he set up the curveball, and he was down, the three-holer. But I said, that is a reading a hitter. At 17 years old, he's reading hitters. Unbelievable. He could have pitched in the big leagues that year. So I want to now jump to '86. When when that Buckner game happens, yeah, where what's your sight line? Do you actually see the play not being made? Well, I don't think. First of all, you know, it was right down the line, and uh, he didn't hit a lot of balls down the line, and uh, Buckner was 
not great. He didn't have great range at that time of his career. He was a teammate of mine in Chicago. When it uh, went down the line, uh, it took a bad hop at the end and stayed low instead of backing up. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, a, a, a nice thing. But when you're two runs down and, and one strike away, nobody on base, and you come back from that and tie it, and, you know, momentum's on your side. You're gonna, it's over now. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, game seven was ours. You know, you know what's funny? Thought the Boston could win. Pete Rose in night. He, he talked about the '75, the Fisk home run game, and he said it's the greatest yeah. game I've ever played in. He said, and everybody sort of when he gets back to the clubhouse, everybody's sort of down. He's looking at them all. He walks right up to Sparky and says, "We're gonna beat them. They're celebrating their World Series win right now." We're going to beat him in game seven. Like that whole idea of, of knowing or sensing, like there's that yeah. sense of what is going to happen because you're reading the room beyond what the final score of that game is. You said you walked in and said it's over. We're, we're going to win game seven. Yeah. Well, everybody, I mean, baseball, there's a lot to say about momentum, you know? And when things, I mean, like in 69, the momentum was totally for the Mets. Mm-hmm. Everything that happened was momentum to help the Mets. And when when things shift a little bit and now the momentum's on your side, you relish in it. Yeah. You, and you acknowledge it and you go with it. Do you believe in the baseball gods? Do you have a little bit of that in you? You know, I, I, I believe that uh, when you compete uh, the baseball gods make, make it happen yeah. for the the, the most deserving. Tell everybody about the worst move, the, the worst deal. Because, again, without going into too many details, when it's not just you and a general manager and there are other people involved and you're going to lose because you don't have a 50-50 vote anymore, the Mets made a move that I absolutely have talked about for 20-plus years, and they said they traded the wrong guy. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about that. And I fought, you know, I fought a lot of trades. Uh, I fought the Dykstra McDowell trade for Juan Samuel, but the worst move they ever made, and and they, and they had a bad reason for making it, uh, was uh, Kevin Mitchell. Uh, they wanted to trade him uh, because they felt he was he ran with uh, Dwight and Straw. They thought he was going to be a bad influence on them. Well, I had uh, him in the minor leagues different times and Kevin Mitchell was one of the toughest guys I've ever been around and he came up from the drug infested gang infested areas of San Diego and he wasn't affected by it and I knew that when he hung out with Daryl and Doc that they were not going to be approached by anybody because Mitchell would could have bent him over over backwards he was as strong as any human being I've ever known I should know because later on, even after he got traded and I got him back in, I think, Cincinnati, he and I had a little scuffle, and he hit me on the head one time with a punch, and I thought it was good. I felt like I got hit with a bowling ball. But anyway, trading him was the worst thing that the Mets could do because then shortly thereafter, uh, the cronies got to Doc and got to Daryl and led him down the wrong path. And, of course, Kevin went on. He won the MVP in San Francisco. Not only was he a good influence, he was a great player. I, I don't want to miss out on the headline. Why on earth would you actually want to get into a scuffle with Kevin Mitchell? Well, he, I, I let him go early, okay, and uh, to the, before the All-Star break, a game. 
And then, you know, he came back a little bit later than I wanted him. And I, I kind of uh, got on him. <laughs> and he was in a room off the training room. And I went in, and he, he was pouting, you know. Uh, and I went in there. And <laughs> it was funny. As much as I admire him, whatever, he's still a, a player of mine. I said something to him. And he pushed me, you know, in the chest. And so I just kind of halfway hit him with a left hook in the chest. He hit me with a right onto the, and I ducked in my head and hit me like that. And man, I, it felt like a bowling ball. And then Ray Knight came in and broke it all up. And uh, it was all over. You know, I didn't even think anything more about it. But we got, <laughs> that was the best way Kevin and I could get air out the situation. Yeah, and it's over and, at that point. It's over. Done. Yeah, and the media doesn't need to know about it. Yeah, no, no, they didn't even know about it. Yeah, so, it was over. So, David, let me just finish up with a couple of quick things. Is yeah. it is it disappointing the Mets didn't win more than one after '86? It's not easy to do, but do you look yeah, back on well, it and go, "Shit, we were"? Well, I was very upset for a couple of different reasons. Uh, it was my first big league job. I came up in their system, which I thought that's what every manager should do. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be there for my whole career. And I, when when they st- traded guys like McDowell and Dykstra and uh, my left fielder, uh, utility man Kevin Mitchell, and they didn't listen to me enough. And of course, because I was kind of adamant about what I wanted, mm-hmm. uh, they fired me. You know, after the fact is, yeah, you know, I'll never forget it. And I kind of felt it coming, even though we'd averaged about 95 wins a year. Yeah. I'm, at the, I'm talking at the Boosters in 1990, and I look down, and I see Frank Cashin. He, he's wearing a bow tie. And I see sitting next to him is Buddy Harrelson with a bow tie. I said, that's it. You know, it's not going to take long, and he's going to be the next manager. Buddy Harrelson was my third base coach. And uh, – Anyway, uh, after about, I don't know, 20, 40 games, uh, uh, I, Al Harrison was on the trip, and he said, go up to your room, someone wants to talk to you. And I, I knew right then. Yeah. It was Frank Cash, and I went up there. I, I, I first I opened the door, saw him. I said, Frank, it's been a great run. Thanks for the opportunity. And he said, yeah, they're making a change. And he said, would I do him a favor? I said, sure, anything you want, boss. And he said, would you not talk to the reporters or your team and just go out the back door, get on a plane, go home? I said, that's hard to do, but I will do it for you. Mm. And that's what I did. Yeah. And that was 1990. Yeah, and 87, 88, you know, again, I think just living up there, everybody thought that here it comes. Here's the Oakland A's. Here's the Cincinnati Reds. Here's the, you know, it's, it's going to be two or three of these. Uh, before yeah. all is said and done, but it's not easy to do. And then when you have personalities and when you have deals that the manager doesn't necessarily believe in, guys start to smell themselves a little bit. Guys are out a little bit more than maybe they were you know, supposed to be. Yeah. Look, I'll ask you, how shocked are you that Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry aren't in the Hall of Fame? Like if I would have asked you in 1988, you know, what year is the induction ceremony going to be, you would have been able to tell me. Well, if, if I could you know, if I could have put Kevin Mitchell around him more and protect him more, mm-hmm. Um, I loved them both like kids. Uh, I thought they were some of the greatest talents that I'd ever seen come along. And uh, what they did with their career was a lot 
from outside influences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have no control over that. All right, Amy, I, I, I had a chance to ask a number of guys this. You ever, because your career, you know, you're 50-plus years in baseball. When you go to sleep yeah. at night, um, you ever dream about being younger, whether you're playing or you're managing or you're back in uniform? Has any of that stuff ever happened for you? No, I, I, I always have enjoyed every moment uh, of every year that I ever had as a player, as a manager. And uh, um, I have no regrets, mm-hmm. you know, about anything. Uh, I, I was kind of my own man. I, I did what I thought was always best for the organization. I fought for it. Uh, it, I, it. I wasn't fighting for myself. You know what I mean? I, it wasn't for glory for Davey. It was what's best for this team and this organization. And, and you can't take that away from me. Yeah. You know? and, and by so the way, yeah, well, I was just going to say, it can, it can cost you a job, too. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. So, but I, I, I have no regrets, uh, you know, about any of it uh, in any situation. Uh, I remember... Derek Hall, uh, you know, we'd won uh, 86 games. After, you know, I had some problems because they signed uh, they signed all the players before they hired me as the manager my first year, and so it took me a while to clean up that team and recommend that I if you can't win in the National League West if you don't have left-handers. And the only left-hander they signed was Carlos Perez, and he couldn't get a left-hander out of his life dependent on it. <laughs> and uh, I got into trade for some left-hand hitters. They also had all right-hand hitters. Um, but anyway, uh, we came back in 186, and I knew that um, that it was either going to be me or Kevin Malone. And I, when they called me in his office, I said, you, you, you need to fire me. Uh, was, I forget who uh, Murdoch had hired. Is, is, he paid 350 to be the president of that club. Uh, and uh, I talked to him, and he, I said, "You got to fire me because if you fire Kevin, he, he hired ten guys, so it'd be easier to fire me." Yeah. And, uh, so they did. Yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting how you had that instinct again on number on a number of occasions. You know what the writing is. You'd been around it enough. You'd yeah, seen how these yeah, guys operate. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm going to exactly. ask you. I'm going to give you random names. Just tell me the first thing that pops in your head about a couple of guys that I'll mention, and we'll finish up with this. Okay. Mookie Wilson. Great guy, you know. Um, you know, I, I probably mistreated him because I had him platooning uh, with Dykstra, uh, but a great character and a great guy on the team. You had a uh, a little bit more than a cup of coffee time with Mike Schmidt in Philadelphia. I love Mike Schmidt. I thought he was uh, he, he was uh, one of the greatest hitters I've ever seen, greatest fielders I've ever seen. I'm a good friend. I admired him. Uh, he, he used to take funny BP. He hit everything to right field. And then when the game started, he'd hook everything over the left field line. <laughs> Tell me about Palmer. Palmer, uh, you know, didn't have much of a breaking ball. Uh, had tremendous command of his fastball. He, he, uh, when I think about Palmer, I think about Satchel Page. When I played against Satchel, I asked Satchel, What's your best pitch, Satch? And he said to me, "It's my B pitch." And I said, "What's a B pitch?" He said, "It be where I want it to be." And Palmer had the ability to, to make it be where he wanted it to be. And later he came up with a little, little breaking ball and stuff. But he could he controlled the inside and the outside of the plate and he had a great fastball. Okay, Steve Carlton. I loved him. I, you know, 
I hit him pretty good when I hit against him. And when I was teammates with him and McCarver, we stayed on the main line together. Uh, you know, I, I love these guys and uh, just a great pitcher. Uh, in fact, is I had a pinch home run against him, and, and everybody thought, you know, he told me what was coming. But he didn't. I just knew he had a great slider, and uh, I liked down and in. But um, great Hall of Fame pitcher. Is Whitey, uh, is Whitey as good a guy to have a drink with as I would think he is, Whitey Herzog? No question about it. Uh, you know, one of the fu- fu- funnest um, guys I've ever been around. Great baseball mind, you know. Uh, and he, he also likes to sleep outdoors, too. <laughs> and, that, and, that was, and that was at your fishing property, I'm assuming. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, it, and he was great. I remember we were doing a fishing show, and the satellite was going up, or a rocket was going up over in Cape Canaveral. And Whitey looked over there at me, and he said, Dave, come July, they're going to wish we were, you and I were on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he had, he had humor, but he also had a sense of what was going on. Mm-hmm. You realized how blessed. Look, you earned it. No doubt about it. You earned it as a as a player. You earned it as a manager. You earned it as a guy who was was willing to walk away from situations that you knew just weren't going to be good for all parties involved. Um, but but are you amazed at the life you've had when you look back at it now? When when you were a bouncing around kid in a military family to sort of do what it is you've done at seventy eight years old, do you give yourself a minute every once in a while to think about? Listen, I'm friends with Ted. I'm friends with Ted Williams. Uh, I was around this guy, that guy, that Hall of Famer. I got World Series rings, both as a player as a manager. Yeah. Not easily done. Have you ever given yourself the moment to think about that? Uh, no, I'm I'm just uh, a normal human being. I got two dogs that love me, and a wife that loves me, and uh, some grandkids that like me. And uh, you know, I I enjoyed every moment, and I felt blessed that I was in situations like that. Yeah. I mean, I I had some great times in the. USA Baseball, I mean, yeah. uh, Taiwan, Beijing. I even, uh, you know, I was called on because uh, the manager of the Netherlands, uh, uh, oh, Yankee shortstop, um, that he's the six-year-old kid was sick. And I went over to manage the team and get him qualified for the Olympics. And his boy died the second day I was over there. Oh. And, and later he had another kid. But uh, I was his bench coach in uh Athens, and then I got to manage in uh, for the U.S. team in Beijing. Yeah. I feel blessed, and I've been all over Europe with World Cup. I mean, it's not not only big leagues, but I mean any any job in managing where you have an influence on other kids. I feel you're blessed and you're lucky yeah. to be put in that situation. And how many you guys know? can say Sadahara O and Hank Aaron as well? I know. I mean. Uh, I hit behind them both when they broke Drew's record. And, uh, uh, you know, both were great and uh, great hitters. Uh, It it was just – I've been blessed. I've been – I've seen more about baseball around the world and in different places in the major leagues. I've just been blessed, you know. And and the fact that you appreciate it. Look, I'm just going to – the fact that you appreciate it, and it sounds like it, and the idea that – you know, there's a responsibility, there's a job to it, but you can also actually enjoy the job. You can actually see the job, do the yeah. job well, pl- work hard, play hard, seems to be sort of the way that you've gone this 50-plus years of this dance. Yeah, the one thing that I always am proud of myself for more than any award that you could ever give me is that I feel that I didn't hinder the process of development for young players. Uh, or I, I, I wasn't a hindrance to their uh, ability 
to expand their ability and do better. And that that's the one thing that is most dear to my heart, Chris. I mean, uh, knowing that I was at least uh, not a negative uh, influence, I was at least a positive influence. Well, perfect, you know what I mean? Yeah, but listen, perfect way to end it. In a world where for generations the young guys really didn't have much of a place, the old guys, you know, resent them a little bit because they were taking a friend's job. Managers mm-hmm. sort of looked at him and just said, well, you know, what am I, why is this guy here? There is something to be said about understanding that a nurturing, a nurturing environment is going to get you more out of a guy than some of the shit that used to be pulled. Yeah. I was so happy. Even when I got fired, I was happy, but Buddy Harrelson getting the opportunity same way in Cincinnati. Uh, when Ray Knight, uh, even though he's pulling weeds in Mark Shaw's yard, that he was going to take over my job, you know, uh, it, it was it was always okay with me. You know what I mean? Well, uh, it, here's another chance for yeah. a guy to move up and uh, face another challenge. And it's and it's why you probably live in the mindset you do that you enjoy your you, you enjoy your life, you enjoy your wife, you enjoy your dogs, you enjoy your grandchildren because there's no bitterness. You know, it must oh. be really nice at 78 years old. You know, God willing, the health scares are done because I certainly know about that, and that's uh, yeah. you know comes into yeah. play. But it sounds like you don't have any bitterness as to what this no. whole thing has been. No, and I'm just. Uh, I'm enjoying, you know, uh, being in my house and doing little chores around here, whether it's filling the pool or, uh, you know, uh, taking the dogs to the park yeah. or, clean. you know, I do dishes and laundry. I mean, I'm, I, I'm trying to be a homebody, yeah. which I never have been able to do, which, you, do you understand that? Well, you're living out of suitcases. Your, yeah, you're living out of suitcases your whole life. You don't have a place yeah. that you, that you no. really plan a flag. So I'm really enjoying leading a life like most human beings do. Yeah. And you married <laughs> the right woman. Sense. Yeah. Well, she she's still got to be on the road. <laughs> well, but, so you told I'm me right about there. the work she does and, and how proud yeah. you are of her. Yeah, I am. She's helping young girls, underprivileged girls, uh, get their education mm-hmm. and with a mentor and money. And uh, she's got 70 girls in college, and I'm so proud of her. Uh you know, she's she's works hard at it. She has to raise money for these girls, and uh, she does a great job. You know, uh, education is the key to success. Well, you and it took took me 160 hours credit to finally get my BS degree in mathematics. So I understand. Yeah, you do, and you and you put the time in, not only on the field but in the classroom. Davey, listen, this is wonderful. Yep. I'm so right, glad yeah. everything is going well. You're healthy. Enjoy everything that's going on. I hope the weather sort of warms up a little bit down in Florida. I hope you get in the water a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, this was really an honor and a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Chris. You take care, buddy. All right, David. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye. All right, bye. Well, it's up to Dave Johnson now to save the Orioles. The 2-1 pitch. There's a fly ball. We play good defense and we had good pitching, and that's what everybody calls the Oriole way. But those early years were lots of fun, and though they lost more than they won, baseball had returned to Baltimore. Put two Robbies in the mix, and by 1966, the Orioles had put the Dodgers down in four. I'm talking baseball, Gentil and John Orsino, Oriole baseball. The Kitty Core, Triandos, Billy Lowe's. Where was Jackie Brent? Nobody knows. I'm talking baseball. Baseball and the old. 
had a genius manager. He just <laughs> left play. <laughs> Being in four World Series and winning two of them, we should have won more. Mets got us one time, bushwhacked us. The Orioles have tradition, and with Ken and Eddie switching, they're aiming for the series in the fall. New names join the old, another team unfolds. I'm a believer in Palmer and Weaver, so let's play ball. cybernetics but i don't like guys putting garbage in the computer and garbage coming out and then telling the field manager how dumb he is a bigger swing no the best hitting coaches in baseball ted williams hank aaron short to the ball it wasn't this long leverage swing and if they were going to try to tell me that i'd tell them to jump off a roof and i wouldn't last a month 